Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Trevor Thrall. I'm a senior fellow here at Cato. And uh, I'm very glad you're joining us uh, for the discussion today, whether here or online. Um, it probably won't surprise you um, to hear that I initially imagined we'd be having a very different conversation today. Um, in fact, back in September when I booked the auditorium, um, I had tentatively called the event Hard Choices for U.S. Foreign Policy, kind of homage to uh, Hillary Clinton's memoir. Um, so needless to say, when the election went in a somewhat different direction than expected, um, not only did the conversation change, but we had to come up with a new name for the event. Uh, you know, and as everyone in D.C. knows, um, this town is all about getting attention. So you know, naming an event is not something you take lightly. So you know, we tossed around a bunch of alternatives. Um, at first, we thought, well, we we're going to use Hillary's book, so let's use Donald's book. And so the first thought was Trump and the art of foreign policy. Didn't quite have the right ring. So then we thought, well, Trump's more of a TV guy than a book guy anyway. So what about The Apprentice Foreign Policy Edition? <laughs> but you know, I was worried we wouldn't get the same kind of ratings he got. And so we ditched that idea. And then, you know, one of my younger colleagues uh, pointed out that Trump's, you know, he's kind of a pretty big deal on Twitter uh, and seems to be doing a lot of foreign policy via Twitter. Uh, so another option we thought about was foreign policy in 140 characters or less, tweeting truth to power in Nazi Germany. <laughs> um, but then I thought, you know, no, Twitter is, is just the medium. It's not the message. I want a title that really captures the full flavor of Trump's foreign policy views. And so I thought about it a while, and I said, aha, to Russia with love. <laughs> Sorry. Um, after some discussion, I worried that Trump would sue me over any of those titles. So uh, after some uh, additional discussion, we wound up with today's event, Divining the Trump Doctrine. Um, even though it's obviously quite a bit less awesome than those other titles, it's probably the, the fairest title we could give it because that's what you do at the beginning of any new president's uh, term. Uh, whenever uh, a new president comes to town, they promise all sorts of change. Uh, new directions, shaking things up, um, you know. But on the other hand, uh, after a few rodeos uh, like this, I, I've sensed it's easy to overestimate how much change there will be when it comes to foreign policy. Um, you know, there's a lot of inertia baked into the system. And frankly, since the end of the Cold War, there's been, uh, as we here at Cato like to talk about a lot, uh, a bipartisan consensus about the, the rough outlines of, of U.S. grand strategy and foreign policy. And so, for example, Obama talked a great game as a peace-loving candidate, uh, but frankly, there are still troops in Afghanistan and Iraq, and the war on terror seems to be going as strong as it did under George W. Bush. Um, having said that, however, I think um, I'm safe to suggest that many of us have a deep suspicion that this time is different. Um, armed with only his smartphone, Twitter, and an uncanny ability to gore sacred cows, Trump has already hijacked American foreign policy uh, and looks ready to radically reshape America's role with the rest, uh, relationship with the rest of the world. And you know, wherever this is going, I think we're in for a very interesting ride. Uh, fortunately, we have assembled a crack team here today uh, to help figure out and divine what Trump will be doing on foreign policy. So joining me today to discuss and divine the Trump doctrine are, uh, <clears throat> to my right here, Peter Rao a fellow at the Hudson Institute in D.C., where he uh, researches uh, a wide range of national security issues, um, is a uh, collaborator on a uh, 2014 book with uh, Leila Fawaz on the social history of World War I in the Middle East, a uh, land of aching hearts. 
uh, formerly also Associate Director in the White House Office of Strategic Initiatives, uh, and served as Director of Research in the Office of George W. Bush, where he helped the former president with his memoir, Decision Points. We also have with us today Will Ruger. Sorry. It's in here somewhere. Uh, Vice President for Research and Policy at the Charles Koch Institute and Vice President for Research at the Charles Koch Foundation and also a research fellow here at Cato. Uh, Will was previously Associate Professor of Political Science at Texas State University. Uh, to his right, Kathleen Hicks, uh, Senior Vice President and Henry Kissinger Chair and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, Kathleen is a frequent writer and lecturer on US foreign policy, national security strategy, and uh, forces and budget. She previously served in the Department of Defense. Uh, 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 sorry, it's in here somewhere. Sorry, too many pages. Goodness gracious, sorry. <laughs> as principal, as, right. <laughs> Uh, Deputy Defense as Principal Deputy Undersecretary for Policy, as well as Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Strategy, Plans, and Forces. Emma Ashford is a, a research fellow here at the Cato Institute and focuses on uh, Russia and the foreign policy of petroleum-producing states. And finally, we have uh, helping frame the discussion and guide our meditations today, uh, our moderator, Karen DeYoung from the Washington Post, where she is associate editor and senior national correspondent. Um, she's been at the paper for more than three decades and served as a bureau chief in Latin America and London, a correspondent covering the White House, US foreign policy, and the intelligence community. Uh, and she's won a number of awards and is also the author of a biography of Colin Powell called Soldier. So with that, um, and just as if we needed a little more stage setting, uh, I'd like to show you a little video that our AV team uh, worked up with some of Trump's greatest hits. Direction I will outline today will also return us to a timeless principle. My foreign policy will always put the interests of the American people and American security above all else. Has to be first. Has to be. We've let our rivals and challengers think they can get away with anything. And they do. They do. ISIS is making millions and millions of dollars a week selling Libya oil. And you know what? We don't blockade, we don't bomb, we don't do anything about it. It's almost as if our country doesn't even know what's happening, which could be a fact and could be true. We're getting out of the nation-building business. Many people are asking me, what do I think of Libya and its so-called newfound freedom? The fact is, what we should have done is we should have asked the rebels when they came to us, and they came to us. They were being routed by Gaddafi. They were being decimated. We should have said, we'll help you, but we want 50% of your oil. They would have absolutely said, okay, 100%. In fact, they would have said, how about 75%? Trying to clarify mm -hmm. the tweet yesterday regarding uh, the nuclear arsenal, and the president-elect told you what? Let it be an arms race. We will outmatch them at every pass. And outlast them all. And outlast them all. All right, you can put that down as so, breaking news. Do you trust intelligence? 
not so much from the people that have been doing it for our country. I mean, look what's happened over the last 10 years. Look what's happened over the years. I mean, it's been catastrophic. You are getting the presidential daily brief yes. only once a week. Well, I, I get it when I need it. But is, it, is there I, some no, skepticism? I, first of all, these are very good people that are giving me the briefings. And I say, if something should change from this point, immediately call me. I'm available on one minute's notice. I don't have to be told, you know, I'm like a smart person. Um, well, that gives us, has given us over the past several months a lot of food for thought. Um, our title, as Trevor said, is Debating the Trump Doctrine. And of course, every time there's a new administration, um, as we all know, what a president says before he takes office sometimes bears little relationship to what he does when he takes office. So I think our first order business is to define um, a Trump doctrine. Is there a Trump doctrine on how to achieve U.S. national security goals? And if there is one, what is it? So I'd like each of you to start off by addressing that question. What, do, what would you, if you had to define a Trump doctrine right now, what would that be? Peter, why don't you start? Down there? Oh, I should start. Trevor, you're here too. You should start. Okay. <laughs> I, there, it's, you know, dangerous to predict especially about the future. Um, and I think, you know, we would have been wrong to predict the Obama doctrine from day one, Obama. Wrong to predict the Bush doctrine from day one, George W. Bush. <clears throat> uh, so we're probably wrong here too. But I think at least three big things occur to me uh, as, as sort of the emerging Trump doctrine. One is obviously his rejection of the liberal internationalism kind of consensus and his replacement of that with a more straight up American nationalism. America first. Um, so instead of worrying about the world order, he wants to worry about America. Uh, second piece, I think, is uh, militarism. I think, you know, even though he sees, uh, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan as big money wasters, um, that doesn't mean he's a dove. I think he's very interested in military strength and power and doesn't seem at all unlikely to use it in overwhelming fashion when he thinks it's necessary. Uh, and then the final piece of it, I think, is economic nationalism, uh, sort of an abandonment of the free trade orthodoxy. Uh, but also, not, not just that, though, but I think compared to the last uh, many presidents, <laughs> I think he also is uh, much more focused on economic issues than standard security and alliance sort of politics. And so I think that his economic nationalism may be an even bigger influence on the Trump doctrine as it emerges than, than it would have been for Bush or Obama or someone like that. Peter, excuse me for before. No, sure. Your turn. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Hello, everyone. Um, I would just say that, as I mentioned in the green room, this is the first president in American history who does not come from high political office or was not a commanding general. So what do we actually know about him? I think all we know is that which he has been for the last five, six decades, namely a businessman. So I would, uh, I would take a look um, at Donald Trump, and I think this relates also to the video we just saw, through the lens of his business practices. And um, I think uh, the many different uh, tweets he has sent out, the many different statements he has made, may be an attempt for him, this would be the first principle, to maximize his options. There'll be a broad negotiation between the United States and our allies over security policy with NATO, over the nature of uh, the trading relationship with Europe. And I think Donald Trump is trying to position himself by putting as many balls in the air as aggressively and as strongly as he can 
to eventually reach some sort of compromise on, say, the German current account surplus or uh, the 2% um, funding gap that um, 22 of the 28 uh, NATO partners, or excuse me, 23 of the 28 NATO partners uh, currently have. There was a very interesting piece by Walter McDougall, the University of Pennsylvania professor, in the last several weeks called The Art of the Doge. I would commend it to uh, everyone. And in it, he goes through point by point key principles that Donald Trump lays out in his beloved book, The Art of the Deal from 1987. Of course, there's a lot of uh, business career after 1987 and other principles that would add to it. But I think that there are five points from that book that probably apply, and I'll just list them very quickly, to what an emerging Trump doctrine might look at. The first is uh, that uh, the location of a deal is not necessarily as important as a deal itself. He writes, you don't necessarily need the best location, you just need the best deal. Secondly, he writes that he wishes to contain costs. I think in combination, uh, this suggests that there will be an outreach to the Russians in an attempt to come to an agreement with the Russians. I think Donald Trump, as he just mentioned, vis-a-vis Libya, probably views the Middle East and North Africa like uh, the F-35 program as an investment of the United States over the past 15 years that has cost us an enormous amount of blood and treasure, and he would like to burden share with the Russians if possible in the region. If, however, the Russians disappoint, I think there are two other principles that will suggest um, a different tack. One is to fight back, and the second is to protect one's downside, and the upside will take care of itself. If the Russians disappoint, and uh, if, there's, uh, if President Trump is unable to come to uh, agreement with them over, say, the Middle East, just because I'm mentioning that crisis zone, I think you'll end up at uh, the fifth point, which is uh, use your leverage. And that is really, I think, where Donald Trump is starting to gain an appreciation for American power. And he's able to, mark at, uh, to wipe out uh, quite a bit of uh, market capitalization for Lockheed Martin with, with one tweet, for example. And the greatest point of leverage the United States has is our allies. And so I think as we tick through these different points that inform the way Donald Trump viewed his business practices, and presumably, I think, uh, given the advanced age at which he's inheriting the presidency, he will adopt many of those principles to the presidency, we'll end up at that final point, which is... <coughs> hopefully, to work through allies, to rally them, to act as a convener of sorts, and, uh, and to uh, continue a, an American foreign policy tradition that I think will be much more than people assume in the tradition of, say, George W. Bush or Ronald Reagan or a George H.W. Bush. Will? Uh, so I, I was recently asked a similar question by the National Interest for their most recent edition. Um, you know, what would you predict? What events are going to... Uh, face Trump. And, um, you know, I thought about it and I decided to kind of hearken to epistemic liberalism and basically just say, it's fool's gold to try to make predictions about things. Um, And so, you know, even though I'm here now in Washington and and we are constantly asked to be pundits, I I just think that it's just so difficult to know. I mean, who would have predicted what would have happened with the George W. Bush administration coming in in 2000 because you had an exogenous shock to that system potentially. Um, or likewise what Trevor said about about President Obama. So uh, what I would say is that we should probably place this in history, which is that we've had two basic traditions in American foreign policy history. Uh, You had the kind of great rule of of President Washington from about uh, Washington's administration to to McKinley in 1898. And then following uh, McKinley and the Spanish-American War and the United States takes on a role on the, on the global stage as an empire, uh, you have that period from 1898 till the present where the United States has essentially been pursuing a policy uh, of, um, of kind of forward deployment, 
of great involvement around the globe and ultimately of trying to kind of shape the, 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 the globe in its image as opposed to trying to be an exemplar to the world in that previous period. So the big question I have is, uh, are we going to be on a third path? Are we going to return to the first? Or the most likely thing is, are we going to have continuity? And I think when we try to think too much about change, we have to remember how much will stay the same. And I think that's what we'll see a lot, um, particularly if President Trump does not adhere to his, uh, the point he made in his first foreign policy address, in which he said that he was not going to look to people who have fancy resumes, uh, but whose policies in power led to bad outcomes. If he doesn't do that, then you're going to have this uh, very similar cast of characters, which will both, both have an upside and a downside in that sense. And so I would expect there probably to be more continuity. But I guess, you know, it's a little bit, uh, you know, Forrest Gump, uh, you know, <laughs> model here, which is, you know, it's like a box of chocolates. You're not sure what you're going to get. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the Twitter uh, feeds that we saw showed that. Um, and so it's going to be a, a, probably a pretty exciting time, which isn't always good. Uh, it depends on if the roller coaster is safe or going to end up off the track. And we'll see. Kath? Well, uh, first, I want to thank Trevor. If I learned nothing else from that video, it was how grateful I am that we don't have to wear our pajamas today. So thank you <laughs> for that editorial choice. Um, I, I, rather than repeat much of what's been said, I, I'll just build on it with my view is that if you, if you take all that you've heard here um, and very much simplify it, I think in his mind, perhaps, who am I to guess what's in Donald Trump's mind, um, that he may think he wants to be like Reagan. You hear some peace through strength. You hear about the strength of the economy being central. He has this somewhat transcendent populist, not quite Republican, maybe not quite Democratic at the time. It, it appears to be a transcendent political view um, that appeals to a certain demographic makeup. So that may be what he, what he thinks he would like people to say the Trump doctrine is after four or eight years. Um, what I think we are going to see simplified is some chaos. And again, that chaos may create opportunity for the United States. It may create opportunity for those who are looking for advantage against the United States, um, depending on how it manifests. Um, we see it in his own statements. The contradictions within the statements create you can call it unpredictability, a little, little bit of a chaotic sense of what is really meant. And you can see it in the cross-currents of the appointments, um, the nominations and appointments that we've seen thus far, where the White House, uh, well, really the National Security Advisor and Deputy National Security Advisor and the President seem to have somewhat of a shared view, although, again, if you look into their writings, they're even internally a little all over the place. And then very clearly coming from some of the cabinet selections, a different worldview. So we know that there will be some kind of reckoning, uh, uh, pleasant, quick, easy, or otherwise. And we also know, um, sadly, whether you call us the blob or the swamp, we uh, do know Washington, and we know how it works, and we know how it stalls. And this gets to the inertia point. Um, it doesn't mean people are necessarily insubordinate. I wouldn't expect that. Um, but it does mean that bureaucracy uh, gets its revenge almost always. It's the clear episode five of Star Wars. The bureaucracy strikes back. So I think the question is, how will that play out? The lineup of congressional Republicans, say, on an issue like Russia, where they're not aligned, clearly not aligned at the moment with the Trump worldview on Russia, 
Um, so there are a lot of questions. I wouldn't try to guess how that roller coaster ends. Hopefully we're all strapped in and we, <laughs> and we land safely at the end and it was a great ride. Um, and in fact, the U.S. Is, a, is advantaged, if you will, 48 years from now from where it is. But I think it's at a high risk and uh, we should never assume that he is the only actor in the system, meaning the international system, who seeks to take advantage of leverage. Um, I definitely think others are out there thinking about how they make uh, hay out of that chaos um, in ways that, in the end, hurt us. Emma. So, um, so I, I think a lot of this has been covered already, but to extend the roller coaster meta metaphor just, just a little further, um, and, and I share many of your sort of distaste for trying to predict things, and I would say, well, there is no one roller coaster. There are three, four, five different paths that this roller coaster could take. The policy positions that Trump outlined across his campaign could be molded in a lot of different directions, and it really remains to be seen. Um, sorry. Um, and it really remains to be seen, I think, which path Trump actually chooses to take when he gets in office, <coughs> or indeed whether he chooses to go down a coherent path at all or opts for something that's very incoherent. But just roughly, I think we can think of sort of four main options um, for a Trump doctrine, what a Trump doctrine could look like. Um, it could look like some of his early scripted policy speeches, particularly the one midsummer um, at the Center for the National Interest here in DC, which was basically uh, measured realism in most areas with, with a few exceptions. I, I think that's fairly unlikely, but it's a possibility. Um, he could go full-on isolationist, as Trevor kind of suggested, not just isolationist on the foreign policy side of things, but in terms of economic nationalism, in terms of closing the borders to immigration. And that would be fairly consistent with, again, a lot of the policy positions um, on the domestic side that he outlined during the campaign. There's a, a really extreme version of this, a, a global crusade against radical Islam. Uh, which is not something that Trump himself has explicitly said, but which a lot of the advisors that he has started to appoint, particularly Mike Flynn, um, have spoken about. They've spoken about the fact America's engaged in an existential war with radical Islam. And so this is very much sort of a Huntingtonian clash of civilizations view of the world. And so that's a, another path that the administration could take. And then finally, and perhaps I think the most likely of these options is the one that several people have alluded to already, which is a somewhat more Jacksonian, or we could call it America first, view of the world where Trump generally doesn't get involved in a lot of global affairs, but if anyone threatens the US or he feels that anyone is disrespecting the US, then he goes in and smacks them down hard. And so he might consider more intervention against ISIS, for example, under that scenario. So I think those are, as you can see, radically different options. That, that Trump could go in, and I think predicting which one he's going to take is, is almost impossible. Um, we're going to talk for a little while, and then we'll open the floor to questions. Uh, I'm going to posit some large questions and some specific questions and maybe point at one of you, but I hope you'll make it a discussion and, and interrupt and follow up and, and interject as you see fit. I want to start out kind of continuing the roller coaster metaphor a little bit and go to some of the things that Kath mentioned. I think anybody who's been around policymaking in Washington for a while knows that process can often equal policy. Um, how you set up, who sits in what chair, who goes to what meetings, 
who has the last word in the president's ear have enormous influence on, on decisions. And one of the biggest parlor games around here at the moment um, in which a lot of people in the White House seem to have relatively equal voice and standing, uh, and you have departments and agencies uh, at the head of which are apparently very strong-willed people with very different experiences and judging from confirmation hearings, different views from each other and from the White House. How is that going to operate? Who's going to be in charge? So I want to know what's your assessment so far. Do you see a kind of Mattis, Tillerson, McCain axis that thinks it's going to have the heft to make foreign policy? Um, do you see Mike Flynn and Jared Kushner butting heads? Um, do you see Trump as fully engaged in policy decisions beyond whatever he decides to tweet on a, on a given day? Who'd like to start with that? Yeah. I mean, as a political scientist, this is almost like a great experiment. Uh, unfortunately, if it goes wrong, you have to suffer a cost, uh, <laughs> unlike uh, when you're in the lab. But, you know, there's a long debate in political science about uh, whether presidents can get their way when they want to do something or whether the bureaucracy, the deep state, the blob, whether they actually whether that process, whether those bureaucracies can affect both the uh, formulation and implementation of policy. And I, I think if you do have these uh, potentially differences um, between the top and, and the bureaucracy, it'll be a way to, it'll be a way to test this. Um, I think it's anybody's guess. I mean, my, my sense always has been on the side of scholars like Bob Ard and, and um, Stephen Krasner, which is that presidents usually get their way when uh, they have a, a strong interest in that policy uh, decision. And, and the bureaucracy has a harder time, especially on the formulation side. Um, now, implementation might be a different story. And, and again, that's going to be a real struggle, I think, if the bureaucracy isn't on board with where President-elect Trump wants to go. I'll just jump in to say, I, um, I think the other, there's so many path dependencies here. Part of it, of course, will depend on how the president-elect, once president, actually interacts with these factors. I do expect there to be a variety of axes. If there were only two, it would be one thing. I think there are going to be a multitude. Um, again, that is not uncommon. It would be extremely rare, maybe unprecedented, I, I can't think of, a, of an exception, where an administration's um, uh, you know, player list looks the same a year in as it did at the beginning. So there's some shuffling we know will happen. I think the question is, you know, who are the winners and losers in that shuffling, and does it start to clarify a vision, a viewpoint, um, a way forward that can operate, or is it stalled? Does it continue to stall it? Everything to date that I know of, of the operating style we have seen from Trump, both as a businessman and as a candidate, and in transition as a president-elect, suggests he kind of likes the unpredictability and chaos, and that he believes himself to be the tiebreaker decision maker, um, and so that may be what we see. The question, I think, becomes, you know, how well does that operate at this level with this span of issue sets and with this many players who have their own independent media outlets, whether it's their Twitter accounts or whether it's that they resign or whatever it is. Um, that's probably nothing like he has had to experience before from a staff that signs non-disclosure agreements. That is not what he's going to encounter here in Washington, let alone the 535 members of 
Congress um, and their own independent incentive structure. So I do think um, it's to be seen, but I definitely think you're going to have, at least at the beginning, multiple axes of power struggle. Not that unusual, but probably on a degree that we have not seen in some time. I think some, some people in town seem to already be laying odds as to who's going to resign first. I mean, there seems to be an assumption that that these, at least as they've been articulated thus far, these somewhat clashing viewpoints by powerful people who are not used to having their views quashed, it's uh, likely to happen. Did, did you I, want to say I, something? I think the new administration could very well lead to chaos, but... I remember in 2009, the incoming Obama administration had its differences, and that was praised as a team of rivals who were going to coexist, and there'll be friction points, but that's healthy for the president because the Bush administration hadn't had an open decision-making process. So I think we should give him a chance. We should see how these different players work together, how they operate together. And as to your larger question, it's, it's my view, and I think I would reinforce some of what you were saying, that in foreign policy, it really is all up to the president. The one decision that I'm uh, fairly familiar with, the Iraq troop surge decision, President Bush took that decision against the advice of virtually his entire national security advisory team and definitely the national security bureaucracy and staffing at the State Department and elsewhere. In fact, it took him some time to bring uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff along, which I think gets at a second point, and that is that the president decides, but then, as Kathleen was saying, you have to, over time, encourage and, and bring along the, uh, the implementers because uh, taking a decision is one thing, seeing it properly implemented is another. But I think almost overwhelmingly in matters of setting the vector, setting the real tone and direction of an administration foreign policy, it, it all sits with the president. Yes, but uh, <laughs> normally presidents can draw on a large reservoir of people who, at least in on paper through a couple of decades or more of professional experience are, are, are rowing in the same direction as the president-elect or the president. And in this case, there is no Trump bench. There, there really aren't any professional foreign policy folks in D.C. who articulate the same vision that Trump does. And so I totally agree that, you know, the president may make everything work just hunky-dory, but to me it seems like he has a somewhat different challenge than typical presidents in that he has to find areas of agreement, not just among his team, but with his team and him. And so I think the art and science of this for him is going to be, can I figure out where the Venn diagram overlaps in order to really, you know, get my team moving in the same direction? It'll be interesting, though, because given his attachment to new media, it may be a case where if the bureaucracy disagrees with him, he can actually, like a, like a populist, go right to the people to try to whip the bureaucracy into line. You know, so his, his comments about NATO, for example. I mean, if he got pushback on some of, you know, maybe he has some initiatives on NATO, um, you know, can he continue to use social media to kind of frame that debate in a way that, that leads to his policy conclusion? Well, did you, did you want to speak to this? Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I think where, where the rubber is going to meet the road on this is if these factions internally are continuing to struggle and figure out who's in charge, but Trump wants to look decisive early in his presidency, the challenge is going to be finding these areas of common ground where the different factions can agree. And there are definitely a couple of areas. Iran is one. Um, campaign against ISIS is another, where we, we ignore all the issues with Russia, we shove those to the side, and we focus on something that almost everyone agrees on. So maybe rather than one of these factions necessarily coming out on top, it's going to get deferred 
for some time while will they work on the areas of common agreement? Well, I, I want to use the, the NATO comment to, to look at alliances and how Trump is going to deal with alliances. L let me read something that um, General Flynn said in a speech last week. He said, as we examine and potentially re-baseline our relationships around the globe, we will keep in mind the sacrifices and deep commitments that many of our allies and our partners have made on behalf of our security and prosperity, as well as the security and prosperity of other freedom-loving nations around the world. In fact, alliances are one of the great tools that we have, and the strength of those alliances magnify our own strengths. So it seems to me there, there's a bit of a contradiction in that. On the one hand, um, alliances are one of the greatest tools we have and magnify our own strengths. On the other hand, the attention, the intention to rebaseline our alliances. I, I don't think we're quite sure what that means. Um, at the same time, you had Rex Tillerson and General Mattis speaking very favorably about NATO, um, that um, this is the bedrock of U.S. national security since World War II. Over the weekend, you had um, President-elect Trump repeating his view as that NATO is obsolete, um, that the European Union basically doesn't matter much to the United States one way or the other, uh, and arguably encouraging other people beyond Britain to leave the, the European Union. Um, he's also questioned security relationships in the Far East. So other than causing a lot of heartburn and anxiety uh, among some allies and cheering among others, um, where does that leave us in terms of the health of the alliances? Um, and where is the administration heading in this? Do, do we know? Do we think this is largely posturing to get them to spend more on their defense budgets? Uh, or is it a real um, desire to move away from this kind of collective multilateral approach to, to national security problems? Who wants to, who wants to dive yes. into that? <laughs> yes. No, I, I think it might be all of the above. I, I think, you know, as, as Peter said in his opening remarks, I, I think Trump is a person who likes to negotiate. And so I think he has a, a standard move of saying something extreme that opens the negotiating in a place that's favorable to himself. And I think many of the comments about burden sharing are exactly that sort of thing, putting people on notice that we're going to re-look at this and the number is going to go north uh, for you. Um, but I also suspect that, I mean, this is a guy who has been, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking foreign policy, never in charge of it. So it's easy to criticize allies not paying when you're not actually responsible for working with them to get something else that you want. And so, you know, again, to the art of the deal, if you're the president now and trying to get stuff done and you're looking for leverage, if your allies are now useful to you, well, he may take a new view as he learns what they're really good for. So I, I don't know how much is one and how much is the other, but I, I think they are up for some renegotiation. That would be my guess. Well, and, and that's one of the reasons why I thought there would probably be more continuity than we might think. But I really think it would be a lost opportunity for the United States to rethink some of these uh, features of the post-Cold War world that we've been living with, um, particularly because, at least in my view and I think in others, that our foreign policy has not been focused on making us safer. In fact, it's done quite the opposite in many cases. And so I do think that we, that we, we should take this opportunity um, you know, in the kind of idea space to say, 
Uh, well, maybe he hasn't articulated it the same way we would, but there are opportunities here, given some of this kind of, you know, kind of, um, kind of shaking up of of that kind of status quo approach. Uh, so, for example, I think one good thing would be to say to really try to kind of question some of the received wisdom, particularly in in parts of the Republican Party, about the the continued expansion of NATO. Uh, so you hear people talking about adding Georgia and Ukraine. Uh, on top of what we've we've already done in terms of the Baltics and other places, and and I think there might be an opportunity to say like, well, maybe it's time to think about shutting that door, or at least having that door uh, need to be pushed a little harder um, in terms of what new states would add to our security, as opposed to how we can help others. And that might be a good aspect of this more focusing on what's good for the United States. The one one of the things that struck me uh, that several. Uh, Trump people have said, I think KT McFarland said it at this same event where, where General Flynn was last week, and, and Flynn has said it, and others have said it about Russia, uh, which is uh, we need to look at things through Russia's eyes. We need to understand what their objectives are. And this, this goes to many things, but also to the question of NATO expansion. You know, why, why did we do that? Why, why antagonize them? Because it was clear that it was going to infuriate them and frighten them and make them nervous and make them and make them belligerent. Emma, you've written a lot about the ineffectiveness of, of sanctions, um, that they haven't really achieved much, that if our goal was a policy change on Russia's part, that's not what we got, and that we ought to think of something else. I mean, Trump has said he's not much in favor of sanctions, um, and he's suggested suggested that he might actually be interested in dealing. Sanctions, you can, you can have the sanctions cut if you cut nuclear weapons. Um, what, what meaning do you take from all this? Does it mean that at least as far as Russia is concerned, everything is negotiable, that there is going to be a real uh, attempt to, to sort of understand Putin's mindset rather than look, just look at his actions and say, well, we can't, we can't put up with this? So I think if there's one positive to take away from Trump being a businessman, it is that he does actually tend to look at the world in terms of this wins and losses, gains and benefits, um, and that we can make a deal mindset. And so actually, I think it's a good thing for a president to come in saying, well, you know, sanctions are a tool, but they're only a tool. You know, they're leverage. We use them to get something we want. The problem, of course, then comes down to is Trump, when he's talking about working with Russia, even if we ignore all of the background about was Russia involved in the election, even if we ignore all of that, is Trump taking a position um, with regard to Putin that is sort of too giving? So Trump has now said that maybe he'll lift sanctions in exchange for a nuclear arms deal. But that's a little problematic because really a nuclear arms reduction should be a deal for its own sake. Both sides would agree to that reduction like they did in the Cold War because that's beneficial to both sides. We shouldn't need to give Russia lifting of the sanctions in order to achieve that. Instead, if Trump wants to make a deal, what he should do is go to Russia, go to Putin and say, well, if you actually implement the provisions in the Minsk Treaty, you could do it quite easily. If you do that, we will lift the sanctions. This is a mutually beneficial deal for everyone. So while it's good that he is looking at this as a tool that he can use to achieve his aims, he doesn't seem to be applying it in a very smart way. And that, that does concern me. 
wanted to add, you know, I, I just find it curious that this, um, I heard both those comments last week, and I agree with them. You always, if you're doing an effective conduct of foreign policy, of course you're trying to think in the minds of the other actors and what their incentive structure is, what motivates them, what their interests are. But that's true across the board. And somehow, strangely, we, this, the only thing that the administration um, to come has focused on in that lens is Russia. So presumably, we should also be thinking about what do the Iranians want and how do we get the most out of that? What do the Chinese want, et cetera, et cetera. But we're not. The whole conversation, strangely, is about Russia. Um, so again, I think it's healthy, I agree with Emma, to be always thinking about what an adversary or potential adversary might want. But you also need to be looking at what leverage you have to get the best deal you can. And we do not at the moment have a great hand with regard to Russia. And it's certainly not getting stronger by the day as the tweets and statements come out along these lines. So I think if there's to be some kind of grand bargain deal with Russia, there better be, a, we ought to see very early on a growth of capital, if you will, on the US side before there's an attempt to make some kind of deal. Because right now, every deal I can think of, to Emma's one example, there are many others, advantage the Russians because they're getting more than if they hadn't gone into Ukraine in the first place. So what about a deal with Russia where uh, Trump says, we will cooperate with you, collaborate on counterterrorism in Syria, but you've got to dump Iran. Iran's got to get out. Um, is that a viable? Is that a viable deal? Is that how his mind works? I don't. I don't think so. I mean, for one, I, I think, just as kind of a, a lead into to answer your question, I think the uproar over his many comments and tweets toward Russia, while understandable, are also slightly overblown. I mean, just a few months ago. Secretary Kerry, and I think, Karen, you, you actually covered this in Geneva, announced as part of the cessation of hostilities a uh, joint implementation mechanism that included as a component an intelligence and information sharing uh, uh, agreement with the Russians. So all of a sudden, I mean, I, I, think, I think Donald Trump used this squarely as, uh, as uh, uh, an overnight conversion that is a, of, of, of many in, into Russia cold warriors that is a function of the election. And I think so a lot of, a lot of Russia discussion now um, from from the side of, of the president elect, I think is colored by um, by his his perception that um, his political opponents are trying to domestically rob him of political capital that he needs to implement his agenda, not just in foreign policy, but also be it from the, the infrastructure plan to 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 tax to tax reform or, or Obamacare. I think I think it really gets into his entire kind of posture heading into, into office. My hope is that he, he doesn't cut a deal with the Russians. My hope is that he that he competes with the Russians. I don't think you can split the Iranians and the Russians. I think that uh, the two have formed a military alliance, and we've repeatedly, um, uh, in Syria, and we've repeatedly sought to split the two. Um, the Obama administration has shown the futility of that, and the upshot is a refugee crisis that is destabilizing our closest allies in Europe, a half million dead Syrians, uh, tiny Jordan, which is so crucial to American interests, Turkey, an alliance, a NATO partner, Israel, now fearing that IRGC is going to turn south after cleaning up around Aleppo, and Saudi Arabia engaged in a proxy war in Yemen. These are not, this is not exactly a rosy scenario that the Trump administration inherits. And uh, my opinion is that is essentially a product of this, uh, this, this attempt to split the two when, when truly they're, they're working in unison. The, just talking about Iran a little bit, um, I, I don't think that Trump ever said he was going to rip up the deal. I mean, several of the Republican candidates did. 
but he talked a lot about how it was a bad deal, terrible deal, uh, emphasized money that went to Iran, leaving out the part that it was Iran's money, but anyway. Um, so I, I think what we're hearing now from Capitol Hill is that nobody's going to try to repeal the Iran agreement. They are going to try to, as they say, implement it more tightly and you know, watch the verification um, uh, more closely. Is this some, do, you, do you expect that Trump's going to go along with that? I mean, he has identified Iran as, um, he sort of lumps together the Islamic State and Iran as, as radical Islamic terrorism. Um, would you expect that he will move ahead not only uh, with, against the nuclear deal, but also, as he said, you know, blowing Iranian ships out of the water if they get too close to American vessels, as they did just, again, just a week ago. I mean, do you expect that to be a flashpoint, or is it just too complicated in the, in the real world? Anybody? I suspect, I mean, even General Mattis, who famously said his priorities are Iran, Iran, Iran at one point, yeah. said in his confirmation hearings that uh, uh, America stands by its word when it signs an agreement, but it will enforce it to the letter of the law. And I suspect on the proliferation front of the JCPOA, the Iran deal, there will be strict enforcement. There will not be, uh, as there is under the Obama administration, the, uh, the, um, the lenient stance on, for example, overruns in heavy water or Iranian shipments. But um, on the conventional front, on Iran's regional breakout, I do think that the Trump administration will probably look askance at Iran's attempt to stretch sort of an arc across the northern Middle East that, um, that goes from, uh, from Tehran through Mosul, across northern Syria, all the way to, uh, to Beirut and Hezbollah, um, in part because of weapon shipments, but more so because it gives them a sort of a political veto over uh, the northern Middle East. I'd also add, Emma and I were just in Germany, actually, and the Europeans, this is one of their major, major uh, uh, points of focus and questions. What are the Americans going to do on the JCPOA? So I don't think, I mean, it's one of the beauties of, uh, of the Iran nuclear deal from the Obama administration's point of view. The first thing uh, that it would put, uh, it would put the Trump administration in a position that on day one, it's in a fight with its European allies. So I suspect it'll be strict enforcement and, um, and pushback on Iran's regional activities. And then um, um, we'll see if the, if the deal can survive uh, kind of more of a conventional confrontation. Um, uh, I suspect actually it won't, but uh, we'll see. Well, well, what about the, the fight against the Islamic State? Trump has said this, this is his major foreign policy objective. Uh, he's been very critical of what the Obama administration has done, says it's weak, says it's ineffective. What, what are you looking for him to do instead? What's he going to change? I don't think he's going to change much. I think it'll be uh, more better, better publicized uh, claim credit, but essentially the elements that are present are match with what he has said he wants to do in counter ISIL. He actually had a counter ISIL speech during the campaign. It matched pretty closely um, in its core elements what is happening now. So I think looser rules of engagement, um, perhaps more advisors, more strikes, again, uh, a, a rhetorical focus bringing, highlighting those gains. Um, that's the fight in Syria and Iraq. I think the real question is at home. 
um, and what counter-ISIL campaign means in terms of the balancing of issues about privacy and civil rights and security. And there I'm very much less sure, mm. obviously immigration, I think we know where that's going. Um, I'm less sure what that will shape up to be, if that will be an emphasis for him or if he will focus, again, rhetorically on the fight overseas. One thing I'd like to bring up for us is, because uh, we keep talking about foreign policy, which is natural given the topic, but in, um, in order to understand what President-elect Trump's foreign policy is going to look like, we have to kind of uh, understand what he views or think about what he views as the appropriate balance between foreign policy and domestic politics as part of his agenda. So in fact, is the Trump doctrine really going to be a doctrine about domestic politics um, and, and really trying to focus there. In other words, does he want to be cl uh, pr President Clinton or does he want to be like President H.W. Bush and President W. Bush and have foreign policy potentially swamp a domestic agenda? Um, you know, to me, it seemed like when President-elect Trump ran uh, and won the nomination and then won in the generals is that he was basically saying that there were all these mistakes in foreign policy and then focused a lot on domestic political issues. So. In that sense, uh, you know, maybe he doesn't want to have his presidency dashed on the shoals of foreign shores. And, and so maybe he will, you know, like, like Kath said, he'll do a little bit less or, 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 or he'll do something similar, uh, but really not rock that boat um, and really try to focus on, on a domestic agenda, in which case uh, it might look a lot more like the Clinton administration than like the Bushes. I, I wonder if, you know, and you would know this from being in the, in the Pentagon, if the, you know, he could do what they're doing now, but just talk about it in a different way, sure. mm -hmm. which would make it seem like something more that muscular. Very, that, and that would be very in keeping, I think, with what we've seen, whether it's him personally tweeting, whether it's asking the folk, giving the folks in the Pentagon more leash, if you will, um, in delicate term, but to, to have their own press conferences, to right. brief uh, more commonly, to be more outgoing with reporters, to sign some intelligence sharing agreements, things like that, that are a little more showy. You, you could do all of that and, st and, and actually be, by the way, in that, not just showy, but advancing along those same basic lines of effort. The loosening of rules of engagement is another obvious one. Um, you may be well advancing the, the cause, but it's not significantly different right. than what's Somehow been happening. I don't think the letting, telling people to talk more media, to reporters yeah, is well. going to be part of this. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I think that you. you know continuity on on the ISIS front is more likely than change because there aren't really that many other good options mm -hmm. here. And I, what would he do, uh, I, I, other than really crazy things that I don't think he'll do? Uh, the one the one caveat I'll throw out though is that um, I'm not as confident about whether he would s stay home if there were another major attack. I think that's where um, the the Trump doctrine might be different from what other doctrines might have looked like. And so I, I also think he seems to have a somewhat thinner skin than other presidents have. And if there are, if fights get a little more personal, I think that you, you could be seeing a, a different approach potentially. Um, and then, Will, a great point about, you know, the balance between domestic and foreign policy. And I, I, my strong sense is that he's going to have his hands full on the domestic front with all sorts of big things that he is more interested in doing. But, you know, unfortunately, foreign policy has a way of coming and grabbing you. Yes. Uh, because uh, you don't just get to say, I'm going to focus on domestic policy. So. Peter? Just to add to that, in this sort of globalized world, I also think domestic and foreign policy, in some respects, become one and the same. I've cautioned a lot of the Europeans that, 
They should not view Trump through the lens of their own populist movements. But I'd also say that uh, I don't think President Trump should uh, view some European populist movements as in the same vein of, of his kind of movement here in the United States. I think Europe and the United States are just very different places. Uh, President Trump has inherited or taken over a party with lots of different components to it, from evangelicals in the South, which certainly don't exist in Europe, um, to, uh, to um, very strong-willed um, members on Capitol Hill like Senator McCain, whereas other groups uh, in Europe, from, from uh, Marine Le Pen to Heinz-Christian Strache in Austria, they've built up their own movements, they've built up their own parties, and their ideologies are different. So um, I think analytically, uh, I, would, I would also hope that, um, uh, that we'd be able to draw distinctions and that the incoming team would see uh, foreign policy, not necessarily as domestic policy. Mm -hmm. we, we haven't talked at all about Asia. Um, <laughs> and I think there was, uh, we heard this morning that uh, senior Taiwanese leaders have been invited to the inauguration. Um, and I guess you could look at this as another attempt to sort of tweak the Chinese and let them know that a new sheriff is in town. Um, how will actions like this actually translate into policy, uh, along with the various trade things that he's outlined? Do you see it as a, as a um, sort of rhetorical positioning yourself for a deal, as, as you were saying earlier? You know, does he say the most and do the most extreme thing as an opening gambit in hopes of, of um, you know, ending up somewhere in the middle, albeit slightly to his side. Will the Chinese see it that way? Will North Korea see it that way? I mean, what, uh, how is this all gonna work out? This... I, I mean, I, I think that we've seen some incidents on Asia basically since, since the election. Um, mostly Trump looking at a situation, often misreading the news reports about it, and then responding with a very reactive tweet. Um, and for, for me, what this highlights is, is less about Asia policy, much more about the overall way in which Trump's going to approach decision making. We can talk about doctrines and approaches to foreign policy and prioritizing domestic policy all we want. But if Trump's approach to foreign policy is reactive, thin-skinned, if he thinks that something has gone wrong somewhere and he has to respond to it and it's all about public relations, then foreign policy is going to be very ad hoc and crises or incidents like the ones that we've seen in Asia over the last month are going to escalate more. And so, so for me, the, the Asia... Um, the incidents that we've seen with Trump, as we saw in the, the video tweeting about, you know, the Chinese have taken our drone, oh, well, we didn't want it anyway. If that is how policy is actually made, crises have a real potential to spiral out of control under Trump. So I think Asia policy was going to move center to right, um, no matter what happened in the election. Mm -hmm. I think the major difference between where I see the Trump administration to be going and maybe where our Clinton administration was going is the parameters around it, much as Emmaset has sort of given an example, they've, they, I don't think they've settled yet, frankly. I think, though, that the range has moved further right. So it, there's still a chance for a essentially moderate, bipartisan, generally uh, pro-ally um, approach that recognizes China as an economic reality, recognizes its security trajectory, and tries to curb that. I think that's still possible, and I think there will be actors in the system who will, that will be their approach. 
at the same time, I think in Asia policy, you are seeing actors being appointed. Um, and certainly on the one China policy deviations, if you will, with the Taiwanese, you are seeing, and the statements made during the campaign about Japan and South Korea, which blessedly have not been repeated since the campaign, um, you are seeing the opportunity for sort of a really sort of different approach on Asia that could lead to miscalculation, frankly. I don't think Donald Trump, you know, obviously formally not schooled in deterrence theory, which is fine, but, but maybe doesn't truly understand those risks of not, your inability to control situations like that in the international arena. So if it's all counterpunch um, and no strategy, I think there are these risks that it could get a little out of control quickly. Um, and really we will be relying, interestingly, on the Chinese, I think, to have that long view, strategic, you know, they're on a pretty good trajectory, let this guy, you know, rope a dope for a while and, and you know, maybe they'll be fine. So I, I am worried about how we manage Asia policy in a way that benefits the United States over the long term. I'm gonna ask one more question and then we'll, and then we'll go to the audience um, and that's about the intelligence community and, and Trump's, so far, his relationship with it. Um, I wonder if this sort of bad, um, really expressed bad feeling on both sides, because I think uh, certainly Clapper and some others, Brendan over the weekend, have gone farther than they would normally go in being, being critical. Um, is this just an effect of the election? Is it because of the Russia controversy? Is it really a sort of... Um, preview of a, of a sort of fact-free zone. I mean, I, I guess my view would be that the, the intelligence community sort of learned its lesson after the Iraq invasion and WMD. I think they're, in my experience, they're much more careful than they used to be. Um, maybe that's completely wrong. And does it make any difference? Um, does, he, does this relationship need to be repaired in some way? Or if, is it in fact just a surface sort of thing that we're all seeing and underneath things are going swimmingly? What? I, you know, I, I think most of this is, is froth. I think once, you know, Trump has his own, you know, director of national intelligence and director of CIA and, and, and assorted others in, in, in their spots, I, I doubt you see much publicly. I think the, the bigger question is, to what extent a Trump administration relies on sound information to make policy. And, and there we hope, like with every other administration, that they're doing that. I, I have no reason to believe they won't. Um, but, you know, I've been disappointed by previous administrations, so I prepare to be disappointed by this one uh, on occasion. I think Pompeo seems to be not disliked within the intelligence yeah. community. Anybody else? Any thoughts about that? Uh, Sorry. Here. Sorry. I, I think it'll be interesting, um, and I don't know what the answer will be, but it'll be interesting to find out how um, General Flynn uh, relates to the intelligence community because um, he was a bit of a, a maverick in, in some senses, right? So his, his blueprint for fixing Afghan intelligence, uh, you know, was, was certainly, he was making an argument for some change. Uh, his time at DIA uh, was a time in which, you know, he was definitely pushing um, on the DIA to change. So it'll be interesting to see, how, you know, what he makes of the intelligence community in his new position, and and how that affects that relationship. And 
I strongly suspect that the intelligence community themselves are going to have to make some changes if they want to reach a President Trump with this information. Um, I mean, he, by all accounts, Trump does not sit down and, and read books or read newspapers. He prefers to watch television. So even just for the people who are formulating the president's daily brief, there's going to have to be a lot of thought gone into, do they, do they make a video and show him it each day? Does somebody brief him personally? Do they have charts and, and cat pictures with it? But how do they... <laughs> Sorry. Put how the PDB they... on Fox News every night. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. Do, they, do they make it in a cable news-style oh, so format where people debate pros and cons of policy issues? And so... These are all things that they could do to try and sort of make it more appealing to him. The extent to whether, which they adopt those methods, I think, will determine how much they get through to him. No, I think the other factor here, having lived a long time inside bureaucracies, is, you know, as long as there are other senior consumers um, that have a, established a strong rapport, and I agree, I think Pompeo did a very good job in his confirmation hearing speaking well of his own <laughs> agency that he's about to inherit. Um, so certainly having a boss who respects and appreciates you will, will help that a lot to the extent that the vice president, as an example, um, is a professional, if you will, in the terms of the interactions and in terms of not going out publicly and, and saying things. That can go a long way, I think, inside, inside the system. So that would be my hope. And again, General Flynn, it's as a former intelligence professional, yes, he's, you know, that's, that could weigh in either direction, but, it, but I suspect it could weigh in the, in the way of uh, understanding what those professionals are up against. So that would be how I hope they will manage, and I think, manage it. I think on the DOD side, by the way, you see something very similar with the military where there is concern about the rhetoric that um, a, a campaign Trump had used. Um, and you see a lot of sort of smoothing over by knowing they have somebody like Mattis who understands civilian control, who respects the military and understands their role and their adherence to the Constitution. I think the more you have players like that in the system, that will help the president-elect. I agree. I think it's hard, to, it's hard to overstate how important access is for the intelligence community to the principles. And um, I think a lot of the dynamic in play is a function of that. But I have a lot of confidence in uh, Mike Pompeo, and I think it'll be, uh, you know, I mean, he's not even president yet, so hopefully uh, we'll see how that relationship unfolds. Well, we've, st we've still, though, I mean, we've got a kind of built-in conflict uh, with the ongoing investigations of the, of the Russian hacking, and, and it's not clear how far the FBI is going to go in investigating allegations of, of um, some kind of collusion between someone on the Trump side, if not Trump himself, and Russia. Um, and so we don't know yet what exactly the FBI is doing. We're going to have a Senate investigation. I suspect there will be some other investigations. So there will be lots of opportunities for um, um, discord, shall we say. But let's now let's go to your questions. Um, I will call on you. And if you will wait for the microphone so that we can get you, get you on tape and online. And um, when, before you ask your question, um, please identify yourself by name and affiliation. So we'll start right here. Mm, thank you all for sharing your uh, insights. Uh, my question for, uh, for the panel, my name is uh, Mahmoud Al-Sharawi, American University. Um, with the challenges he faces Trump, 
as a president, even among his team. Will he make a successful president? And what kind of message that sends to the younger generations other than literally everyone can be a president? <laughs> Who wants to tackle that? I'd love to go on record, even before the Trump administration starts, so you can all play this tape again in four years as to how successful or not he is. Um, <laughs> with that, I'll kick it to uh, my colleagues. <laughs> I just wish we had an expert on millennials and public opinion yeah, in here. Right. <laughs> yeah, okay, fine. I, I, uh, I, I, you know, young people did not vote for this guy. So um, uh, I think uh, in terms of, and he is historically unpopular among the general public. And research on political socialization suggests that uh, the popularity of presidents uh, has a permanent lifetime effect on the political views of the young people who are watching them be president. And so if Trump's popularity or favorability stays at around 40% where it is now, uh, you can expect uh, an added uh, bump of voters for Democrats uh, down the road, uh, regardless of whether uh, experts might deem his presidency successful. Um, will he be successful? I sure hope so, but I will not predict. Mm -hmm. um, okay, we'll stay oh, on this side, sir. One, huh? mm -hmm. Thank you, Herb Chapman. Uh, I was a Moscow correspondent in Soviet times, and Putin seems a worthy successor to the short-lived Andropov, who came from the KGB to run the country. And so the question... A little louder? A little louder? Uh, the, the question relating to... Uh, dealings with, with uh, Putin. The Republicans for years ran against Yalta as a giveaway of Eastern Europe to the Soviet Union, never mind that the Soviet troops were already at the Elbe. Uh, can uh, Trump make any kind of deal uh, relating to uh, Putin's conduct, uh, rem remembering that the Minsk Agreement uh, that the Europeans instituted the, the sanctions to enforce it. Can he make any kind of broader deal that wouldn't be seen as, uh, in fact, Yalta too? That is, you, you can do what you want to destabilize Ukraine, uh, threaten uh, um, Belarus, make the Baltic a Soviet lake. Uh, uh, don't bother me. Can he make uh, can he make any deal with Russia short of of that, or will uh, will Trump wind up? massaging the uh, shoulders of Angela Merkel like George W. Bush did. You want to deal with that one? Uh, again, I sure, I sure hope so, just as, just as I sure hope he's successful. No, I, I think that just as we talked about how with the campaign with ISIS, Trump is probably going to pursue a strategy that sounds remarkably similar, but he's going to talk about it a lot more and talk about how great it is and try and sell it differently. I think there is very much the potential for some kind of deal with Russia that is actually quite similar to what the Obama administration has been pursuing, which is everyone adheres to and implements the Minsk Agreement. We acknowledge, even though we don't like it, that Crimea is probably lost to Ukraine. Um, and we continue to say that the Baltics are members of NATO and that we defend the members of NATO. And so I think there's scope for that exact agreement, which is the one the Obama administration has basically been promoting, and for Trump to basically sell it as, you know, I stopped Russian aggression in Ukraine. Putin and I are like-minded leaders who came together and worked together and we solved Eastern Europe's security problems. And I think because he's coming from the Republican side of the aisle um, and because he is taking a slightly different approach to Russia than his predecessors, there is the potential for a deal there that isn't just giving away the shop. Um, I hope that Trump pursues such a deal. 
If I could just pile on, if, if, I, if I were able to transmit this, like all my email communications and voice to uh, Moscow, I would, hope that the, <laughs> I would hope that Putin would take that deal and spin it as, I didn't like them. This guy is going to work with me. We are important on the world stage. And, and we'll take that deal. I think the fear is the, that there's nothing that could motivate the Russians to take it. But I think Putin could make something out of that domestically that would give him incentive to do it. And then you'd have a basis for going forward into other realms of cooperation. That would be my hope. Hmm. I mean, one interesting thing is whether the right wing, Trump's right flank, would allow him to, right. to claim success there. And that's what could be also no. interesting, too. <laughs> right. no, I, but it'll I, be no. really interesting what's going I got the numbers that disagree. <laughs> I wrote them down for this very purpose. OK, sure. All right, in, in April 2016, uh, asked, uh, you know, do you think Russia's power and influence are a major threat to the United States? 46% of Republicans said yes, just 37% of Democrats. That was April 2016. January 2017? Just 41% of Republicans say so, but 67% of Democrats now say so. <laughs> so the answer, I think, is yes. There is a Trump effect mm -hmm. on Republican opinion, not on anyone else's, about Russia. But there and will so always be the McCain, exactly. uh, Graham, congressional. Yeah. You have a ceiling, but, right. but I think he can win some of them. I hope that, the, to, to, to pick up on an earlier question, that the example of Taiwan gives heart to the Baltics and to the Eastern Europeans, that America does stand by its democratic allies, and uh, that might be a good example of, uh, of where Trump is willing to stand up to, um, uh, willing to stand up to a, to a large regional power. Um, I, I, my personal opinion, I, I, don't think that the, I don't think that the right flank would be willing to sacrifice Ukraine at the altar of a better relationship with the Russians, um, and I think those Pew numbers are basically a function of, uh, of the election meddling more than anything else. I don't think they necessarily reflect any change uh, in thought about Eastern Europe. If you look at Republican opinion polling on NATO, for example, it's very strong, um, despite you know Trump's yeah. Trump's comments on NATO. So I, I don't know. I don't I don't see uh, I don't see uh, well I don't see that as my desert errata. Who knows if it's uh, if it's actually. I, I just I count. just think it's interesting. You said to sacrifice Ukraine as if they were a part of NATO, an ally, or this great liberal democracy. I mean, so you know I just or find useful, that to be, really in, in any right or, or relevant to American <laughs> safety. I mean. Right. We live for a very long time, in fact, our entire history, without being an ally of Ukraine, uh, other than during World War II when we were allies of Russia and Ukraine as part of the old Soviet Union. So I just, I, I'm just not sure what the sacrifice is, other than, um, you know, it, it, short, certainly it would be uh, nice if you didn't have violations of Westphalian sovereignty. Mm. Well, okay. <laughs> that's debating a different that's doctrine. So right. <laughs> My name is Stephen Shore. My question is, to what extent are... What's your are, affiliation, sure. Oh, uh, the PBGC. To what extent are um, Trump and Putin like-minded leaders? Oh, amateur psychoanalysis, my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you do it then. So Trump has expressed throughout the campaign, and, and for much longer than that, going back, going back in time much past he started running for office, he's expressed a lot of admiration for people that political scientists would refer to as a strongman leaders. Um, leaders who typically authoritarian um, exercise a strong control over their country through the force of personality, in some cases have even built a, a cult of personality. And so I would say that there is certainly some sort of 
admiration going from Trump to Putin, <coughs> whether that admiration is reciprocated from Putin to Trump, I, I highly doubt it. Um, but it, it is the case that with Trump's sort of personal uh, admiration for strongmen, he may be able to achieve better deals talking to those countries than someone like Obama, who was naturally very uh, reticent, very pro-democratic. Trump might be able to do better with those countries. It's, it's interesting to me that when Putin more recently has been asked about things he has been quoted saying about Trump, he said, I actually never said that. <laughs> Yeah, um, and, and I believe the one yeah. quote where Trump thought Putin said he was brilliant, brilliant. it yes. turns out that um, the, the word that Putin used in Russian actually means um, colorful. Like, <laughs> like he was a colorful personality. That's, right. That's brilliant, like a peacock. Is yes. <laughs> okay, yes, sir. Thank you very much. My name is Bob Vastine. I'm, I'm a fellow at the Georgetown Center for Business and Public Policy. And my field is foreign trade policy, so I really don't belong here. But um, uh, we're all watching uh, with great trepidation in foreign trade policy and, and the areas you've been discussing. Um, we're supposed to be uh, identifying a Trump doctrine. So far, I, I don't think we've come up with that. Um, but it, could it be seen, could it not be seen suggested that he is really struggling for, for, for um, scope, for the ability to break up patterns that have locked in previous presidents. Uh, Taiwan, for example, uh, our attitudes toward NATO and Russia, for another example. Uh, we've taken uh, for granted a certain set of strictures, a certain structure, a certain uh, accommodation. And he, while, while selecting um, members of his cabinet who were very strong and, and in a way rooted in the, in the status quo, um, he is looking for wiggle room. He's looking for ways to move the ball, create opportunities, openings that didn't exist, throwing the Taiwan relationship up in the air, uh, maybe lets him make, make, a, make a new deal. Nate, the same thing with NAFTA. Um, you know, uh, why not? Why not go for it? Why not just open up, open up the game? <laughs> And maybe that's, at least initially, his modus operandi. So the question uh, is, is he, wants, he looking he for wiggle room? Go ahead. The question is, what's, is he looking for wiggle room with all this? I couldn't hear you. Is he looking for wiggle room? That's the question? Yes. Right. Or does he have a strategy in mind of where he wants to be instead of where we are? Yeah. yeah. Well, my view, he doesn't have the strategy, but he's, he's looking for openings. And that's, that's my point. Well, my, my view is that there, there's a reason why there is an American foreign policy tradition. Um, and just to return to the Middle East, since we've talked about it so much, there are actors in the Middle East who have a vision of regional order that aligns with the United States, that believes in American leadership. And so I think President Obama might fit your templates in that he has been somewhat of a revolutionary foreign, foreign policy uh, thinker. I think he has reached out to the Iranians, who traditionally have not been good friends of the Americans. Um, and uh, I think it's very hard for presidents to sustain that. We've seen why over the last uh, uh, several years. So I, I, I think there's a good reason for it. Um, I suspect um, uh, there'll be a lot of uh, information flow and a lot of uh, bureaucratic pull that will push the president in the direction where uh, he wants to work with our friends and allies because there's a reason why there are friends and allies and there's a reason why we have competitors and why we have downright enemies in this world. And so I, I think it's, it's very difficult to do what you just described. I think President Obama has attempted to do it. 
Um, and uh, based on the cabinet appointments and I think um, uh, what we've heard from, from Donald Trump, I think it's more likely than not that he'll, he'll revert to, to kind of more of a traditional American foreign policy. You know, Mike Ozenko had a, a, a piece about the Trump doctrine just a few days ago in, in foreign policy, and he complained that Trump doesn't have a grand strategy, that he's actually sort of explicitly anti-strategic, mm. and, and complained that he's sort of tactical and transactional in his thinking about foreign policy. And I, I read this closely because I, I, I thought, well, we should be able to respond to that on this, this panel a little bit, but it occurred to me that the criticism is that once overstating how coherent any president's grand strategy is, um, you never get to implement a grand strategy. You're sort of hopping from part of the world to part of the world crisis to crisis. Um, but it also, I think, frankly, understates the coherence that he, he has. I mean, he's 70 years old. He's, he, he actually has patterns of thinking about the world. Now, is it always going to be perfectly expressed in every tweet? Probably not. Is it going to be expressed in every policy? No, because he can't change policy on a dime 100%. Um, but I think he does have some general impetus and instincts, and I think we'll see those, you know, over the next four years. Uh, so, but, but to the question of, you know, wiggle room, I, I think right now, you know, he's sort of testing the water. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's not a terrible way to describe what he's doing. Where, where am I going to have success? What is this box I'm in? What does it really look like? I mean, he's, he's new to the game, so. Can I, can I uh, just expand on that a little bit? One of the things that strikes me uh, about Trump is that you have had something, certainly since the Second World War, that has sort of spanned Republican and Democratic administrations. Uh, you know, there's a pursuit of American power and American security, but there's also a pursuit of the spread of values. Um, and you never hear something like that from Trump. And it goes to the Ukraine question. You know, is it important to have Ukraine um, as part of NATO? Is it important to have Ukraine as a functioning democracy? Um, and I wonder if, if you see in Trump that really just the sort of abandonment of that half, however much it's been lip service as opposed to reality, but that half of American foreign policy aims. I'll just say, I don't think, I don't think that has been universally true. And the one major exception which Emma pointed to earlier is the clash of civilizations type rhetoric about Islam. Um, which, granted, has been strongest in its um, anti-Islamic approach from his advisors. But he has said things before. For instance, in the follow-on to the Orlando shooting, he talked about, um, you know, these are the people who are coming after gays, things of that sort, where it was sort of a value-based... Um, but domestically. Not that we have a responsibility well, to I, I spread mean, values again, around the world. Again, in the counter-ISIS, his whole approach on ISIS is they're, they're beheading, they're doing these things to women. That actually has been part of his personal rhetoric on ISIS itself, um, which you could argue is just rhetorical, or you could argue he, there is somewhere in there a values-based approach. I raise it only to say he has not universally avoided the issues of values in his rhetoric in the campaign. Um, and so I, I'm not sure how, how big a difference it will end up being. I, I actually tend to think he does have a, a general worldview that's more taft than it is, if you will, um, uh, uh, is more of an isolationist Republican than an expansionist Republican. That said, it's, it's not strict. It's mixed in with, again, a peace through strength um, we want a big military. We want to have all these levers of power. And I think the challenge will come when the world 
that we have doesn't interface with that strategy perfectly. It doesn't interface with any strategy perfectly. And then how does he adjust? I tend to think he's more likely to adjust by, by moving. He'll kind of come to learn why things are the way they are, if you will, in US foreign policy. And if for practical reasons, if nothing else, may move more to the center. The question is, what's that? You know, how far off do we go uh, before we have that opportunity to curb back? Yeah, there's one thing that, I mean, most pundits and people who follow politics, of course, thought that Trump would be dead at many different stops from Megyn Kelly through South Carolina and whatnot. But I think what was telling was that there's a, that Trump both represents a view that he's selling to the American public or at that point to the Republican uh, electorate, uh, but also um, is something that reflects, I think, maybe what a lot of Republicans and then ultimately uh, a selection of the electorate wanted, which is he went to South Carolina and he did something I thought would kill him. He criticized George W. Bush. He criticized Republican, uh, you know, kind of the basic Republican approach to foreign policy in the post-Cold War era, and he lived to tell about it. And he did it in South Carolina where you really would have expected that message. And he specifically named George W. Bush as being responsible for a lot of the problems. And so what that signals to me is that he does want, that his instinct at least, is that he wants something different. And I think that that will have a lot of resonance, um, and particularly in this issue of democracy promotion, I think Americans are, are a big subset of Americans are tired of this. So the uh, Charles Koch Institute and the Center for the National Interest did some polling recently, both in October and then in December before the holidays. And one thing that kept coming through is that uh, a majority of Americans kept saying that uh, that the United States' foreign policy has not been making us safer and has not been making the world safer. Um, so I think there's a real concern here about whether what we've been trying to do, even if it's well-intentioned, has actually been working. And so I think there will be a, a reticence. I don't think it's isolationism, uh, but I think it's a, it's a reluctance. Um, yes, sir. There. And then we'll move over to this side. Uh, Kent Meyercourt, World Docs. Uh, if we were having the discussion you expected to have when you first reserved this room, namely on Hillary Clinton's perspective, foreign policy, uh, I think there'd be much more agreement amongst the panelists as to what we can expect. Taking that knowledge and combining it with what we know about what uh, Trump's uh, foreign policy opinions, both what we learned before the election and subsequently, if we could pretend the election hadn't yet occurred, whose perspective foreign policy would you find scarier? <laughs> maybe, we can, maybe we can have a show of hands amongst the panelists. Is that Trump versus Clinton? I'm sorry. I, I think, yes. Trump I find Clinton. Trump's foreign policy scarier. I will. <laughs> oh, thank you. One person in the audience. <laughs> in the audience. I, I'm just going to be more of an, uh, 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 less normative. I, I think that we would have, we certainly would have known a lot more about what, what Hillary was going to do. And so there was a kind of devil you, you know, which was more of, I think, some of the same policies we've been approaching, which in my view and the view of many Americans hasn't been making America safer. You know, Trump, who knows where it could happen, there's probably a higher upside and probably a, 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 a higher downside, a lower downside. Um, so there's greater variance there. Um, but, you know, I, I was not enamored of where we were going and where we've been. And, and I think a lot of Americans share that. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think the... You know, the question, when asked before the election, the question basically boiled down to, 
Clinton's foreign policy, which, you know, I, I did not like many aspects of, and that was not good, or Trump's foreign policy, which as today's discussion has proven, we, we can't define, we can't predict, and we're really not sure where he's going. And so the, the political scientist in me says, well, unpredictability is, is far more dangerous than the devil you know. And so I think now we are in a situation where we really don't know where we're going for the next four years. And so comparing it to Clinton, well, we would have known where we were going. Maybe it would have been good. Maybe it would have been bad. Now we're in uncharted waters. Sir. Yeah. All right. Um, my name is Ryan Kelleher. I'm with American University. Um, so just kind of looking more back on the NATO alliance and specifically thinking about our Western European allies. Um, We've been kind of seeing some splits in regards to what Europe has viewed with a lot of the world versus what the Obama administration has wanted to do. So if you see, basically, if there was a split even more between what Europe wants to do and the United States wants to do, what do you think the cost would be to U.S. foreign policy if the United Kingdom or France started to go their own way versus kind of working traditionally with the United States? Hmm. I think it would depend in part over what the issue or issues are on which we, um, I assume mean, meaning tremendously veer, because of course we don't, we're, we're never really in full accord any, any two given countries on, on uh, everything all the time. Um, but I think in general terms, I do think alliances are one of our greatest asymmetric advantages. Um, and that doesn't mean they don't need to change, evolve, and be worked through. And you know that they can be a real pain, and the only thing worse, of course, is not having them. So I think, to the extent that the problems of the future are global, generally in nature, you need global solutions. The U.S. alone can't just sort of put up, if you will, I don't mean literally the walls, but put up the walls, um, and hope that the threats that are out there, whether they're proliferation, whether they're terrorism. Um, narcotics, et cetera, th those challenges require global solutions. So to the extent that the U.S. decides its national interests are um, at stake in any given case, not having partners and allies to work with becomes a real challenge to actually getting advancing U.S. interests in the face of those challenges. Now, to the point raised earlier, I think the key question is, okay, well, how do you choose to engage that and in what way? It doesn't it doesn't usually require the use, for instance, of military forces. Um, so I think that's where you get more into what I would call a selective engagement approach. Others might use different terms. That becomes essentially necessary if you're going to manage your interests in this kind of environment where everything could be seen as a threat. I, um, I think one of the downsides of Brexit is that we will lose Great Britain within the European Union and uh, European common and defense policy, I think it's very important that it remains complementary to NATO and aligned with uh, the NATO alliance. I'm all for a, a, a EU common border defense uh, approach. I think Frontex should be staffed up and there, there are jobs that Europe can do. But um, I think it's crucial for the United States that NATO remain the bedrock of the West and that it is the transatlantic alliance and that um, what Europe does on defense and foreign policy reinforces and strengthens NATO. Um, if Europe is going to go its own way on a common defense policy, and there's lots of talk of this, especially in the wake of the Trump administration, I would hope it wouldn't just be another expensive headquarters in Brussels. God knows there are enough of them there. But instead, investing in real capabilities that, uh, that have good synergies um, 
um, with NATO. Let's try over. A lot of questions. Yeah. <laughs> Sir, and then, and then right behind you. <clears throat> Dave Fitzgerald, retired Foreign Service. I have a question about the, the makeup of uh, the Trump team in foreign policy. So far, uh, we've talked an awful lot about Trump's tweets and that, but do we really have a Secretary of State or a Defense Secretary that's really going to stand up on a lot of foreign policy issues? There's been some sense from the um, media reporting on the testimony last week that there's some hope for uh, a more traditional approach to foreign policy, but are these really the type of people that are going to step up like Al Haig used to say at the beginning of the Reagan administration, he was in charge. Do we have a vicar for foreign policy at all in this administration? If you go back to the, uh, to the Reagan administration, he seemed to, uh, President Reagan seemed to have less of a role in the foreign policy, leaving it to his team to feed him stuff. And he spent a lot of time on, you know, his radio addresses, reinventing, you know, going back to that type of uh, thing of, uh, Trump with his tweets, Reagan had his radio messages every Saturday. We talked off about Taiwan and other uh, foreign policy problems. If you go back to Nixon, he, he actually ran foreign policy and he did it in the basement of the White House with, with Kissinger. And he just had front men out there, Rogers. Well, so, so what about the State Department and yeah. this whole sort of traditional way of running foreign so policy? So far... Who wants to? Too early to well, tell, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's probably too early to tell, but I, I mean, I think it is, I don't want to use the word unprecedented, but it is absolutely fascinating that if you watch the confirmation hearings last week for, for, Matt, uh, for Mattis, for Tillerson, um, for Pompeo, every single one of them expressed strongly views that, that were very different from Trump, um, particularly on Russia, where we see I think Mattis, it was said, Russia is the biggest threat for the U.S. Um, Tillerson wasn't quite as extreme, but they, they all came down quite strongly on we should take a more confrontational line to Russia at the same time as Trump is tweeting how much he loves Vladimir Putin. Um, but the question that I think Trevor says, you know, we, we can't know yet, it's too early to know, is what we don't know is whether they will actually stand up to Trump. When we're in the room, when they're discussing making a foreign policy decision, will Trump always get his own way? Will, will he be the one making the decision? Oh. Or will he actually listen to the counsel of these advisors? And, and I think it's too early to say. I mean, it, it strikes me a little odd, though, Emma, because Trump is the only person in his administration that's accountable to the people. So we would want the president to get his way in the face of bureaucrats, although we would also want a president to listen to expertise by bureaucrats, but that he would be the decider. So, you know, and again, I'm leaving out, you know, things that might be, uh, you know, illegal or, you know, violations of the Constitution. But again, um, I think we would, you would want the Democrat, the person who's democratically accountable to do that. I mean, we don't want to have a principal agent problem, I think, in the administration. But I think this goes back to the, to several things. One, the question of process. Mm -hmm. how, how do they organize themselves? And how does Flynn, as national security advisor, present these disparate views? Absolutely. What kind of direct line do Thank cabinet you. members have to the president outside of that structure? Yeah. Um, I think that Trump has shown himself to be, uh, as he did when he first met with Mattis. You know, he said, well, I expected him to come in here and say, torture's great. And he said he doesn't like it. So... 
I don't know. I guess I have to think about that. Uh, you know, is he, as we have described, a sort of relatively empty vessel on the specifics of policy with some big Instance. sort of ideas that how, how is that going to be well, filled in? Let, I think that's, say that for the sake as we've of, said many times, we don't know. Let's say for the sake of argument that, that Trump was everything that maybe he said along the lines of what Trevor, it shows you actually if that's the case, whether that's good or bad, if he were you know, that kind of tafty in person. Let's just say for the sake of argument he was. It just shows you how hard it is actually to staff up an administration with people that are like-minded, given that the Washington conversation on foreign policy is within the 48-yard lines. Yeah, and, that's, that's and exactly so, it. like, imagine if a Rand Paul had one who had a, you know, a, a very different vision. You know, where do you find people with the experience to do that? Which is why I think it's it's important for people who do challenge the status quo to get involved and try to get that experience at lower levels. But we're we're right at our time limit, and I but I promised this gentleman that he could have a question, so I'm sure he has a really short one. And everybody <laughs> wants to have lunch. Jim Malt, uh, retired Army and retired Defense Intelligence Agency. Question is similar to the gentleman just previously. Of the advisors, assuming that the members of the cabinet get uh, get approved, who is likely to be the person that has the, the sway, the last one to talk to him at, at night? Uh, of the cabinet, of the people, Flynn, uh, Katie... Uh, um, McFarlane. Katie McFarlane, uh, Jared Kushner, somebody else around there, and, and of those, is there any that you see as more likely to give us what we expect to be the, the flow to the upside of where we're going on Trump foreign policy and those who you might go, maybe that's going to give us to the downside? I don't know. <laughs> and I think it's, it well may be better known in the wake of the first crisis rather than before it. I think you learn a lot. Um, in everyone in the system will learn a lot when the first thing happens, which I just heard in the green room that the president's taking the weekend off, so the North Koreans may run that, <laughs> run that drill on the weekend. Um, but I think coming out of that, the president will get a sense of sort of who was effective, who was ineffective, who was getting advice to him, all of that. And they, in turn, will get a sense of how you know, how he absorbs the information and what makes him make the, motivates him toward the decisions he takes. So I, I think there's no way to answer these questions until, it's not just the people, it's not just the process, it's the people in the process and all these other exogenous, to borrow the great political science word, exogenous <laughs> factors that occur. Um, and it, you know, it's quite a, it's quite a, com, a combustible mix, I think, that we have. So we'll see where that all goes. Well said. Yeah, Thank you so much. Um, I want to give a hand to our panel.